Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay. We'll let Brother Robert get the door and window and lights. It's good to see everybody. The ones that are here. Amen. Hope you're enjoying the holy seventh day. Hope you're getting some rest. Hope you're getting more rest than I am. And I hope that it's been a day, a blessed day. Amen. God is God is good. Amen. God is so good. Very Let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we worship you, we praise you, Lord. Thank you for this new day, the seventh day of the week, this day of rest and worship. Thank you, Father, that we are alive right now, this moment, so that we can continue to learn, hear your voice, receive your direction. Father, there are many people in this world that are being hindered from serving you 100%. Many people, most people upon this world are deceived, deceived by themselves, and deceived by the devil. And they are following their own will and their own way. Even people that believe that they are saved, many people, fit that description but we pray that you would please reveal to us personally our our sins and our flaws and all of our wrongs and transgressions please examine us and reveal to us how you see us please show us our faults Please help us to repent, even of things that are the most difficult for us to see, even things that we don't want to see. Please show us, Lord, our inner person, who we really are. Please help us, Lord, to examine ourselves as we head toward the days of Passover and days of unleavened bread. Please help us to prepare ourselves and examine ourselves sincerely and deeply and truly. And not just that we would acknowledge our flaws and our sins and transgressions, but also that we would repent of such, change our ways, and not continue to follow our own will and our own way but that we would follow you 100% without hindrance and that we would not allow 
ourselves or anyone or anything to him greater in you, in you, and our full servitude to you, Father, that you would be our first love and our last love, that you would be our ultimate head, the ultimate master, the ultimate husband, and the only God. Heavenly Father, save us and deliver us from ourselves, from our blindness, from our complacency, and from our excuses. Father, we ask, Lord, that you open every ear, every heart, every mind, every spirit and soul that listens to this sermon. Open our ears to receive your voice. Please help us to hear you over and above our own voices, over and above all the noise and all the distractions. Please speak to us, each one, individually, every one of us, and deliver us. Fix me, Lord. Fix me. May your will and your spirit prevail in each one of us individually and as a church of Christ. May we be in unity and not unity and not division. Unity of doctrine and faith and spirit and mind. That the body of Christ not be divided. but that we would be a complete and full body, not cast away from you. Praise your holy name, Father. Have your way in this service. Please have your way in this sermon. Please have your way in us. In Jesus' name, thy will be done. In Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. Amen. Praise Jesus. Good morning, good evening. Let's turn to the book of Corinthians. Amen. Praise the Lord Jesus. On this 27th day of the 12th month in God's calendar. This year is about over with. In fact, we're going to have new moon services, special services, on Wednesday. Wednesday will be the first day of the first month of the new year. One Corinthians and I do encourage everybody to please bear with me because I will say, you know me, I will say some things you never heard before. I will definitely Test how far you can go in the Lord. How much truth are you willing to accept? And how much are you willing to follow Jesus and his ways and his will and not our own? Amen. I don't teach traditional doctrine. You know that. And every year we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the deep things of God. And as we do that, we will continue to depart 
farther and farther and farther away from traditional doctrine. Absolutely. That's the way it should be. If we're growing in the truth, even in end time revelation, even in the end time outpouring of the Holy Ghost, then we should go be going farther and farther and farther away from the traditional Babylonian teachings. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read the first 16 verses, God willing. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 We're going to have to do this in several steps lay some foundation work before we get to the main point So please bear with me 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 Paul says to the church at Corinth, in the town of Corinth, he says to the people, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In other words, do as I do, copy me as I copy Christ. Now I praise you because, or I encourage you and say that you're doing right because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the customs or traditions just as I delivered them to you. So not only is he saying copy me because I copy Christ but also copy me even in my traditions in my customs the cultural customs of the time not just what Christ would have done. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, every person, every human. But especially the head of the male, the husband, the man, and the man is the head of the woman. And Theos is the head of Christ, meaning Christ came in the flesh and the Spirit reigned over the flesh. Every man who has something on his head while praying or worshiping disgraces his head. Verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or worshiping disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it be is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head as in a hat while praying or ministering. A man ought not to have his head covered, for he is the for he is the image and glory of Theos. But the one man if man does not originate from not originate from woman, but woman from man for that. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. To set an example for the angels or 
as a witness to the angels that are watching that the woman is being obedient to the husband and therefore to God. Verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman, for the woman originates from the man, so also the man through the woman, and all things originate from theos. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to theos uncovered? Talking about head covering. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious or disagreeing, we have no such custom. We have no such tradition. This is all erased. Everything I just said as far as the head coverings and all of this, all of this is gone. We have no such custom. This is gone. We have no such custom, nor have the congregation, which is misspelled, Robert. Make a note of that, please. Nor the congregation of called out ones of Theos, the church. We should not have this custom. We should not have this tradition if it causes disunity in the church, division and confusion or whatever. So, there's a lot here. What we see here, both in verse 2 and in verse 16, at the beginning and the ending of that particular section of Scripture, then it moves on to something else. So, at the beginning and ending of that, he clarifies, to start with and to end with, this is nothing but a tradition, his tradition. That was a tradition that is very old, that 2,000 years ago, that we don't have today. We do not have that custom today. At least most of us don't. Don't have that custom today. Some people read this, especially the Y-name people, the Hebrew cults, the Torah people that focus entirely upon law. They that women, women, women must always wear some kind of head covering, some kind of bonnet, a hat, a headscarf of some type. The um, several groups do that. The um, Amish do that. The Memonites do that. The Hebrew roots people do that, especially in the context of what it's really talking about at a worship service. That's what it's really talking about, praying or prophesying and ministering to the congregation to let everyone know in the congregation that as that woman prays out loud in front of the congregation or as that woman prophesies out loud in front of the congregation, that she is doing so with the blessing of her husband, that she is not out of order, that the husband understands what's going on and that she has her husband's permission. That is really the context of it. We would have to drill more into it to show you that, but that's exactly the context. Now today, that would still be a decent custom, a good custom 
I believe it would be a good custom to do it. But it's not thus say of the Lord. Amen. This is his custom. He said to thus say of man. If it was thus say of the Lord, if it was thus say of the Lord, then he wouldn't say, well, if it causes division, let's not even worry about this, right? It's definitely only a custom, a custom that is gone and done away with. For most of us, we don't have that custom and don't need really that custom. So not everything Paul said was thus say of the Lord. Sometimes he did exercise his opinion, especially for specific congregations with specific needs at specific generations. Amen? That was his personal recommendation to the Corinthians. He didn't say that to the Galatians. He didn't say that to the Ephesians. He didn't say that to the Romans. He said that to the Corinthians. Amen? And he also did not say this would be for all time a perpetual covenant either, right? We got to understand, when we read the Bible, we need to think, who is that particular chapter or that particular passage, that verse, talking to? Who is writing it? And who are they writing it to? And for what reason? That way we get the context. Anytime Many people miss the, con miss the context, the spiritual principle, the spirit of the law, because they don't ask themselves that question, who is writing this? Who are they writing it to? What is the background? What is the situation in that particular situation? This situation was a particular congregation who very clearly, in the context of it, had a problem with women speaking out of order, right? If you read all of Corinthians, you see that even more clearly. How he said for, even with Timothy, how that the women were speaking out of order. That woman is to keep silence in the church and, and so forth. When we look at the greater context of Scripture, that was the problem, okay? And I would say this would be a great custom for the seven-day Adventists to re-embrace, even in modern times, because they have that problem. They have that problem of having too many women ministers, too many women pastors. So it would be good for them to embrace that again so that they can get control of themselves, so that they can come back to God's original intent for the pastor, a man and of the of the wife and of the of the wife and of the entire congregation of society of business of everything that the men should be the leaders. Seventh Day Adventists have gone completely away from that spiritual principle. So it would be good for them to come back under this legalism, under this custom, under this tradition, old-fashioned tradition. But for us, who already acknowledge and understand and practice the truth that the man should be the pastor, ideally, and that the majority of all the ministers should be men, then we don't need that custom. Amen. Then let's move on to the issue of the long hair for a man. This is brought up very often. And that's verse 
14. 1 Corinthians 11, 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Well, guess what? That's not correct. Does nature teach? Does it? Does it? Don't, don't take Paul's word for it. He's not Jesus Christ. Ask yourself sincerely. Does nature teach that it's a shame or dishonor for a man to have long hair? If you was living in the jungles or, or time in history to where you didn't have scissor shop or you didn't have scissor shop or you didn't have scissors or you didn't have a knife, what would happen by nature? How did God create a man concerning his hair? He would have long hair, would he not? He would have as long of hair as a woman by nature. How is that a dishonor? How is that a shame? How is that a disgrace? How is that sin? How is that abnormal? By nature, a man would have just as long hair on his head as what a woman would. No difference. Amen? So very clearly, Paul was wrong. He was wrong about that issue of the long hair on a man. He was coming from his cultural customs and traditions, having been born in a Roman province of Tarsus, Tarsus, however you pronounce it, of that Roman town, even though he was a Jew or Levi or whatever tribe, whatever tribe, he was an Israelite, okay? He was an Israelite, but he was born and raised in the Roman Empire, in a Roman city, with Roman citizenship, which he continued to embrace and never denied. He never was his Roman but he, had, but he had, But he had somewhat of a Roman mentality, amen, having been born and raised in the Roman Empire. And the Romans did have the men keep their hair short. But the Israelites did not, even though he was an Israelite. There was plenty of Israelite men that had long hair. We know was it is it I think Numbers six, right? That has the Nazarite vow where a, a man or woman, either one, dedicating themselves to the Lord, taking a particular vow would have the long hair. So, and that's a symbol of holiness. And long hair on an Israelite represented holiness, not disgrace, not shame, but holiness and wisdom and strength, such as Samson with long hair. Was it, dis, was it a dishonor or a disgrace that Samson had long hair? No. Uh-uh. It was actually his connection to God. So very clearly, if you think this through and ask the tough questions and not just follow traditional doctrines and not just accept the words of Paul always as thus saith the Lord, then he is, he is and realizing that and realizing that and realizing that he was given counsel to a particular group of people at a particular time in history. All things considered, he was wrong about the hair 
and the custom itself, even though a useful custom is not always necessary for everybody at all times. Amen. we got to understand this. Amen. Now, with all that said, let's go over to chapter 7, which is not far away. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7. And let's get over to what we really need to talk about today. 1 Corinthians 7 is used all the time by many very legalistic denominations of Babylon to teach that a woman should always and forever stay with her husband, no matter what the situation is, even with severe physical abuse, even if the husband is an unbeliever or atheist or even a Satan worshiper. Many very legalistic denominations of Babylon use these verses to teach that a woman can never, ever, under any circumstance, ever leave or forsake her husband. Examine this. One Corinthians. Examine this. One Corinthians. Examine this. One Corinthians seven. I'm going to start in verse twelve. One Corinthians seven, verse twelve through fourteen to start with, and then we'll go up to some previous verses, but let's start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. Paul says, again, to this church of Corinth, he says, but to the rest I say, and not the Lord. Let's stop right there. Think about the, his very first statement in that sentence. I say, not the Lord. So just like when he was talking about the long hair, just like he was talking about the custom of a head covering, he says, this is just my opinion, basically in different words. This is not thus saying the Lord, this is me, this is my opinion, this is my personal opinion of the situation. Therefore, as we keep reading, we've got to remember it's only his opinion, not thus saying the Lord. Amen? I say not the Lord, that if a brother, meaning somebody who is truly saved, a member of the congregation of called out ones that has been baptized, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. Now we have to examine what that word unbeliever means too. For most, which is someone that doesn't believe in God, that doesn't believe in God, an atheist. But if you look at all the Bible, and not just what you think a word means, when you consider all Scripture, all Scripture, from the first page to the last page, an unbeliever, by biblical definition, is really a person who does not follow God in the truth. They, might even, they may even believe in God, or a God, or three gods, or a hundred gods. They might. Believe in many gods, as the Greeks did and the Romans did, but they don't follow Jesus in the truth. They're not a true believer. They are not a true follower of Jesus. That would be your biblical definition if you read all Scripture. So if a brother, a true brother, a, a true man of God, has a wife who is not following Christ in the truth, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman 
who has an unbelieving husband. The same situation. When a woman has an unbelieving or a husband that's not a true believer or a true follower, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband. The unbelieving is sanctified. I got to kind of laugh or be a, a little bit all, or got to maybe even gasp at what he's saying here because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I think Paul must have been smoking some pot right here or something, drank too much coffee that day or something. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Come on now. Let's get real. On Judgment Day, when you stand at the great white throne judgment and you see the face of God, will you be able to say, my husband or my wife is my key into the kingdom? Not you, Lord Jesus, not my repentance, not my baptism, not the blood of Christ, but my husband or my wife, because they believed the truth, because they got baptized in the truth, because they kept your commandments and your law, and they visited the prisoners and the orphans and the widows. I have a free tide. I can just sit. I can just sit on this person's lap and get a free ride. I am sanctified. Bull crap. Bull crap. Amen. Amen. Paul is not Jesus Christ. He was a human. He was capable of making mistakes. Amen. I don't believe that anybody can be sanctified by another person. Amen. You will stand at the great white throne judgment or at the first resurrection whenever you are judged and be judged by your own works. Even Paul said that. That you would be judged by your own works. Amen. Now let's go back up to some previous verses to verse 10. To the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. So that's vice versa. But yet in both cases, he's talking to married people. So there has to be a difference here because verse 10 says, Thus saith the Lord. 12 says, But he's not the Lord, but my own opinion. But my own opinion. So there's a difference between the two different sections here. And I tell you the difference is verse 12 uses that word brother. So underline the word brother in verse 12. Because that's the significant difference between these two different passages. And that's why one is thus say of the Lord and one is just his opinion. So verse 12 through 14 is Paul's opinion. Now let's go back to verse 10. To say, to look at, to examine, to consider what Paul says, thus said the Lord. Verse 10, to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. 
Now, pause again, because if verse 12 is to brothers, meaning church members and true believers, then verse 10 is not to them. That's the difference. That's why we underline brother in verse 12, because verse 10 and 11 is people outside the church that are not baptized members, not true followers yet in Christ. They are not to Christ yet. And therefore it says, thus the Lord says, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she leave, unmarried, remain unmarried, remain unmarried. So there's a loophole. He doesn't say, absolutely, Never leave, even though he kind of says that first, but then he leaves a loophole. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband so that the husband should not divorce his wife. But both times he basically has the same principle. Stay married. If at all possible, stay married to all groups, both inside the church and outside the church. That's the basic general principle. And I have to agree in general, of course. I've read the whole Bible. I've read the whole Bible more than once. And I know that many of you have also read the whole Bible. And I have to agree absolutely with the general principle. The elementary principle. Until we get into the deep things. Amen. The general elementary principle is try to make your marriage work and try to lead your husband or wife to the Lord. Have some long suffering, have some patience. Truth, show for them, fast, pray for them, fast, pray for them, fast for them. Yes, try to make it work. Absolutely. We know that God does not like divorce. But yet, there are times in the Bible where it does say divorce is allowed. Amen. The Bible absolutely gives some exceptions. So again, I say that these are basic principles that people should stay married. There are exceptions, as I said many times before. There are exceptions to almost everything. Amen. Let's go down to... Verse 15, so we don't leave none of this passage out. Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such case. But Theos has called us to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know or save your husband? Or how do you know or husband? Rather, you would save your husband. Rather, you would save your wife. So again, like I just said, you do, you do need to initially trying to make it work and trying to lead them to Christ. I absolutely agree with that principle. 
Absolutely. But I also have to ask the question, for how long? For how long do you wait? For how long do you long suffer? Amen. For how long? Forever? Forever? Many people claim so. Many people claim. Yeah, absolutely forever until Christ comes. Well, I would have to completely disagree with that. I don't see the words forever in this. And Paul does mix some of his opinions within this. Amen. And again, Paul had been wrong on certain other things. We know that for a fact. Amen. And we do need to consider all Scripture, not just what Paul said. Let's consider also what Jesus said and what the Old Testament says and what the entire Bible says. We've got to consider the whole thing. Amen. Paul had been wrong about, it's possible, he could be wrong about some stuff. Now, 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 we do want to cross-reference a little bit, actually a whole lot, right? We want to cross-reference. So let's cross-reference into Peter here, 1 Peter 3. Because, again, these same people that says a, a wife must stay with the husband forever... No matter what, without exceptions, they will also go to 1 Peter 3. So let us look there, too. We want to consider everything. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. One Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Okay, I got to laugh at that too, because without a word, without saying anything, without showing them the scripture, come on, I got to laugh at that too. Okay? Just by the behavior, just by looking, just by their actions. But not by a word. Not by saying anything. Not by telling them about the Sabbath. Not by telling them to look at the scripture and please read this article. I have to kind of laugh at that as well. In verse 2, as they observe, observe, just watch, just look at your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on clothing. Verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, again, without talking. Just let your husband look at you. Oh, yeah, that's going to work, yeah. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, not speaking. Oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's really going to work, yeah. Which is precious in the sight of Theos. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in Theos, used to adore themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, 
calling him sir, and you have become her spiritual children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So wrong. Okay. So obviously Peter followed the teachings of Paul, which was good for his day. Amen. But two thousand years have passed. Two thousand years have passed, and we are no longer primitive men and women. Amen. We're getting closer and closer to the Lord. These men have died without seeing the promise. Amen. They're not in heaven. They're not walking with the Lord. They're not speaking with the Lord. They're not, they're not, they're not listening to the Lord right now. They are dead. They are dead men who cannot consult the Lord anymore, that cannot fast anymore, cannot pray to the Lord anymore, cannot hear the voice of the Lord anymore. These men are dead. Whereas you and I are still alive, we can still fast, we can still pray, we can still seek the Lord, and we can still hear the voice of the Lord. And the, and the Lord is not dead. God is not dead. He is alive, and he still speaks, he still corrects, he still teaches, he still reveals even the deep things of the Lord. There are still things that are being taught and revealed to us this day that were not revealed to Paul, that were not revealed to Isaiah, that were not revealed to any of the old former prophets that are all dead. God still teaches and reveals God. He is a Lord. He is the living word, the living word that never ceases teaches never ceases to teach, never ceases to speak. He has called prophets and apostles for every generation. Amen. Usually, most of the time, those prophets and apostles are not accepted within their own lifetime, but mostly after they die. And people will follow the words of dead men. And lots of that is very edifying and encouraging and helpful. And yes, all scripture is profitable for doctrine and teaching and reproof and correction and all this. Yes, absolutely. But not every word in the Bible is thus saith the Lord. Even Paul confesses that. Amen. Not every word in the Bible is thus saith the Lord. We consider Solomon's rant about how beautiful a woman's titties are. Not every word in the Bible is thus saith the Lord, and not every word in the Bible is really even Holy Ghost inspired. Or really, we have to follow a scripture talking about how beautiful and how perky a woman's titties are? Is that really Holy Scripture? Come on now. I respect the Bible. Titties too, like any man would. But come on now, we have to. Fa but come on now, we have to face reality. Amen. I respect the Bible, but not every word of it is thus saith the Lord. Amen. It is a collection of history books, wisdom books, proverbs, and proverbs are nothing but old sayings. The proverbs were collected over centuries. So is the songs. Centuries of collections of songs and old sayings 
history books, wisdom books, and a man ranting about a woman's titties. And also, thus saith the Lord. Amen. Thus saith the Lord is part of the Bible, but not all of the Bible. Some of it is pastors' opinions. Amen. We've got to understand this. Peter followed the teachings of Paul in this case. And but Peter is dead. These are general statements. If we realize that, I don't necessarily completely disbelieve that these are generalized, very generalized, very generalized statements that do not always apply in every situation. There are exceptions in many different things. What about physical abuse? Real physical abuse. Violent abuse. If a, if a, if a man is coming home drunk from the bar and just punches the living daylights, breaks her teeth, busts her nose, breaks her legs, is that wife supposed to stay with that man? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now I'm talking about violent abuse. I'm not talking about just uh, a man disciplining his wife. A man does have the right to discipline his wife. Bend her over his knee and give her a good spanking with his bare hand. If that's what she deserves, discipline her. If she is back-talking him, disrespecting him, being stubborn, rebellious, and disobedient, absolutely a man has a right to discipline his wife. And a woman that will not get out and would just continue, continue to and continue to and continue to provoke him day and night. A woman like that deserves a slap in the face, not a punch, not broken teeth, not broken bones, just a simple slap in the face to get her out of his face. There are exceptions. There are situations that arise. We have to deal with reality. We don't live in a dream. We don't live in a fairy tale. We don't live in a romance novel. We're dealing with real life here. There are exceptions to almost everything. But I'm talking about with violent abuse, real abuse. No, a woman does not have to stay with that husband. If it's just proper discipline, then she should stay. But violent abuse, God would not want her to stay in a violent, abusive situation. But yet Paul doesn't say that. And Peter doesn't say that. Because their words and their statements were very generalized because they was writing to entire congregations, not a particular individual. Amen. If they had dealt with a particular individual with a particular specific situation, and it was a violent, abusive situation. I guarantee you would have told that answer for But, amen. But, amen. But the violent, abusive situations is not the only exception. That's just one out of many. Amen. Only one 
out of me. And if that one particular exception does exist, which I think anybody with anybody in the right mind would have to agree with it, but yet many don't. There are preachers and wives and, and people out there that want you to think that there are no exceptions to anything because they consider the writings of Peter and Paul as thus saith the Lord and there's no exceptions. And people that think that way, they don't worship God really. They think they worship God, but what they are really worshiping is the writings of men. And they are, they are worshiping a book. And they are worshiping the Bible. And we should not worship the Bible. We should honor the Bible, respect the Bible, even with all of its flaws. But it's not God. And we should not worship the Bible in the same way we worship God. But people do. Most Christians, most Babylonian Christians do worship Paul as God and Peter as God and they're able on the paper pages of the Bible as God the Bible as God they don't confess that but they do they do if we ask the tough questions if we sincerely examine deeply the situation because it's exactly what they're doing worshiping the Bible itself worshiping a book and worshiping Paul and Peter as God when they claim that there's no exceptions, and that we must follow this to the letter. The Pharisees did the same thing. Amen? Wouldn't you have to agree? The Pharisees did exactly the same thing. I shared on MeWe the other day. I wish I had put it in this sermon. I forget where it's at. John, definitely in John, that Jesus said that you seek the scriptures, you study the scriptures, however he said it, because you think that in these you have life, but it is these, the scriptures, the words that testify of me, amen, and yet you do not come to me, different words, but that's close, amen, you have it, Robert, Okay, but it's in John. So in other words, Jesus was saying to Jesus was saying to, Jesus was saying to them, even as I say to you, people study the scriptures, read the scriptures, thinking that there's life in them, and yes, there is life in them, but they go to the written word, the ABCs, and not really to God Himself, who is living and and has more power and more authority and more glory than the scriptures themselves. Amen. P too many people are going by the ABCs and not by the Spirit. Amen. We have to consider the Spirit of the law and not the ABCs of the law. If we read Peter and Paul, we got to understand these are the ABCs, but there is a Spirit. There is a spiritual principle that we must follow. The spiritual principle is try to work it out, try to lead everybody to Christ, including husbands and wives, but there are times that you simply cannot work it out, such as in the violent, abusive relationship. You're simply not going to work it out. 
Amen. And it's time to get out of there. To protect yourself. To do what is wise. To do what is prudent. To do what is necessary. Amen. But the violent abuse is not the only exception. It is dangerous for a alcoholic for a alcoholic to live inside a bar. An alcoholic should not rent a room in the back room of a bar. It might be the only place that anybody has offered him to stay. He might have a buddy working at the bar. And he might have nowhere else to stay. But if he's an alcoholic, he should turn that down. It would be better to live in a ditch or a homeless shelter than to live in the back room of the bar if you're alcoholic. The same is true for a believer trying to live with an unbeliever. It is exactly the same thing. Amen. For an unbeliever and a believer, for darkness and light, for a follower of God and a follower of Satan, to live together would be the same as an alcoholic trying to live in a bar. It doesn't work. It's dangerous. It's risky. It's a danger to your soul. What if the husband or the wife was a magnet for demons and demonic dreams? What if de devils come to you in your dreams, come to you in your sleep, hold and sacrifice? Say Christ. Say Christ. Now I know the devils tempted Christ in that way and he withstood. Amen. And turned them down. But he, he was Christ. For us, if the devils came to us and offered us that same thing in our dreams, that would be a pretty demonic dream. For us, for demons to come to us and offer us the world. If we would forsake Christ or leave Christ or leave the truth or whatever. And why if the person we're living in is the magnet that are bringing those demons into our sleep and are bringing it in. And what if that's not the only dream, but dreams continue to be manifested by demons trying to pull you away from God, trying to pull you out of the truth. And there's a magnet living with you, a spirit, a soul, a lost soul, living with you, that are attracting those demons. That is a dangerous situation. It's a danger to your soul. So there are different situations other than just the violent abuse. It's dangerous for a believer to live long-term with an unrepentant unbeliever. How live live with of with an unbelieving, unrepentant husband and still fully keep the holy days. How can a believing, baptized wife fully serve Jesus 100% under the roof, under the control of an unbelieving husband? It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. I don't care what you say. It's impossible. She can try her best, but it's impossible for her to be under an unbelieving husband's control, command, 
ownership and follow a Christ 100% and keep the Passover correctly. Do the pilgrimage for Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover, unleavened bread, eight days. Feast of Tabernacles was the last great day, eight days. And then Pentecost in the middle of the year and all the other holy days. And do the pilgrimages three times a year as commanded in Scripture. That unbelieving husband is going to say, no, I'm not going to let you go there three times a year. Stay eight days in the spring, eight days in the fall, plus a day in the middle of the Pentecost in the middle of the year. And every year. And not just the first, and not just the first year, but the second year too. And every year, he's not going to do that. And even if he does, even if he does allow all of that, what about the next Halloween that comes up? And as the child gets older and older, I can tell you, I've seen it over and over and over. I've seen it over and over. It might be okay when the child is little, but as they get a little bit older, that that dad or that mom's going to be wanting that child to be trick-or-treating or participating in Christmas or get a Christmas gift or whatever. What are you going to do then? Just watch the devil corrupt your child? It'd be better to get out of the situation and take a chance and believe God that you might get custody of the child. Amen. And if, even if you don't get custody of the child, at least you don't have to watch with your own eyes your child being drugged away by the devil out trick-or-treating and receiving the demonic Christmas gifts and all that. At least you don't have to see it and watch it in front of your own eyes. Sooner or later, the unbelieving husband will get tired, sick and tired of your holiness. Light and darkness fights. Light and darkness will not coexist. And they might try to coexist for a while. But as you continue to grow in God, as you continue to get closer and closer to the Lord and more and more repentant and more and more uh, obedient to God, Sooner or later, there's going to be a clash. And sooner or later, it's not going to work anyway. It's not going to work anyway. It can't work. Light and darkness cannot coexist. As that bright light gets brighter and brighter, and as the darkness gets darker and darker, darker, they cannot and they will not coexist. To think that they will coexist, and you're going to leave that darkness to the light, is not realistic and it's fooling yourself. I do encourage people, I have told people, stay a while. Witness to them, give them the flyers, give them the articles, pray for them, fast for them. I have told people that multiple times, multiple people. I do try to tell wives, stay a while, be patient, lead them to the Lord for a time and a season. But after a certain number of months, I'm like, it's not working, and it's not going to work. Here we've read. How do you know that we've read? How do you know that we've read? How do you know? I think it was in Corinthians. How do you know if you would lead them to the Lord? Well, if you have been with that person all of your life, 
you should know by now that they're not going to repent and they're not going to serve the Lord. And especially if they tell you to your face that even if this ministry is proven right, that Assad is the Antichrist and that the strong delusion, the abomination of desolation is Assad, the president of Syria, in the clouds, in the sky, in a fake coming of the Lord on a specific date of the year, on perm of some year, even if all of that occurs, that they still won't follow Christ and that they still won't accept Jesus Christ as God and they still won't follow this ministry and you think you're going to lead that person to the Lord? Then you're fooling yourself. And you live in a fairy tale. Amen? In addition to the nightmares of demons coming to you. Amen? So how do you know if you will lead them to the Lord? Well, after a certain amount of time, you should wake up and know that they're not coming to the Lord. Amen. That you should long suffer with anyone on this forever, forever, anyone. They either accept Christ at some point or they don't accept Christ at some point. Amen. There are times to move forward. Amen. And what about the need for true brothers and sisters in person? What about the need that we have? Every one of us needs a local pastor, a local brother, a local sister. How are you going to get that if you stay stuck in an unbelieving household under unbelieving dictatorship? dominion, control, and not living in the same town as the fellowship. Now, for people that live in other nations outside the United States, where we don't have congregations established yet, I understand. And I don't tell you that you have to move to America. I understand people living in other nations. But for people that live inside the United States, or even extremely close to the United States, even in Canada, Mexico, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, if the ways and means present themselves or or can do for people in this do for people in this do for people in this hemisphere is to move and be where the Lord has set His name. Amen. Because we need, if at all possible, we need local pastors, local brothers and sisters. And we have to consider that. We have to consider everything. Not just one or two things. Not just what Paul said and Peter did. But we have to consider everything. We need a local body of Christ. Amen. Even if allowed, even if the wife is allowed to keep all the holy days fully, which I doubt, there will be a hindrance somewhere to the spiritual growth while living with darkness. You cannot live with darkness without it affecting you negatively in some way. It's just impossible. Amen. What about future Christmas gatherings? What about demonic friends that enter the house? What about demonic family members? What about demonic books, movies, or symbols 
that still remain in the house that the husband may not allow removed. How can light live with darkness and still have peace? Amen. To another passage, actually another book of the Bible, and what I'm about to read is going to blow your mind. And this is a divine revelation, because I can I can give you my opinion and I can give you my interpretation and all this, but I had a divine revelation last night. Let me share that with you. Let's go to Malachi two, the book of prophets. Malachi chapter 2. And that's the last book of the Old Testament. And that's the last book of Prophets, volume number 4. If you're following along in the Alpha and Omega Bible. God willing, we'll read this entire chapter of Malachi 2. Now, I was cross-referencing 1 Corinthians 7 that talks about stay married to the unbelieving spouse. I was cross-referencing that. And that's what you should always do when you're studying the Bible and when you're studying a particular topic or subject and you really want to know the truth. Don't just Paul said with what Paul said. With what Paul said. Cross-reference it. That means look at other Bible verses that have similar words, similar phrases, similar subject, look to see where else in the Bible and not just stop with Peter and Paul. And don't even stop with just the New Testament. Look in Old Testament too. Really dig deep to get the whole picture of the whole Bible. And so uh, doing that, cross-referencing 1 Corinthians 7, I came to Malachi 2. And at first glance, when you first read Malachi 2, if you read it quickly, if you don't slow down, if you don't stop to think, if you don't pray as you read in it, pray before, during, and after, you can miss it, the, the principle, and go only by the ABCs and not really get the principle. Just like with Corinthians, you've got to slow down, read in prayer, read with the Holy Ghost, His help, His leadership, to understand the spiritual principle. At first glance through Malachi 2, you might think that this confirms what Paul said, but it doesn't. In fact, it proves Paul wrong. It proves Paul wrong. And I'll show you that very simply. Let's read Malachi 2, verse 1. This is page 205 in the brand new up to Alpha Omega, page 205, 205, Malachi 2, verse 1. And this is actually God talking. Uh, and to prove that, go to chapter 1, verse uh, 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of Jesus to Israel, to Jezebel. So this is actually God talking, not just a prophet or Malachi. Then we come back to chapter 2, verse 1. This is God talking. And now, O priest, this commandment is to you, and you are not hearken. You won't listen and obey. And if you will not lay it to heart, 
to give glory to my name, say of Jesus Almighty. Then I will send forth the curse upon you. If you don't listen and obey, I will send a curse upon you and I will bring a curse upon your blessing. And yes, I will curse it and I will scatter your blessing. And I will, and it shall not exist among you because you lay not this to heart. So as we got to read it, we got to lay it to heart. And as I was reading this, and as I was reading 1 Corinthians 7, I really took these things to heart. I was examining, am I wrong? Have I given the wrong counsel, the wrong command, the wrong advice? Am I staying wrong? Heart, am I wrong? Verse 3, verse 3, behold, behold. I turn my back upon you, and I will scatter dung, I will scatter poop, shit, upon your faces. For the dung of the fiestas, I will curry your way at the same time. What this means is, if you compare it to some verses in Isaiah, that the people being hypocrites, keeping the holy days, keeping the feast, the fiestas, but treating the widows wrong and the orphans wrong and not taking care of people and not being true to God. And they were only doing things the holy days outwardly. So you have to compare that. And so when he says that the fiestas will be like shit upon your face, he's saying that I'm sick and tired of your hypocrisy. I'm sick and tired of you doing one thing, but inwardly, you're revious wolves. Inwardly, you're wicked, but you're trying to put the outward makeup on the outward face of holiness, but inside, you're wicked. And so your fiestas, to me, are vain. Even when you're trying to keep the commandments, even when you are following through with the ABCs, even when you're of the law, you might keep the holy days, you might keep the holy days, you might keep the holy days, you might keep the Sabbath, you might go to church, you might participate in the MeWe groups, you might email me and stay up to date and follow all the ABCs. But you're not really following the Spirit of God. You might be following all the words of, of uh, Peter and Paul, but you're not following the Spirit of God. And therefore, your obedience to the ABCs is like shit to me. That is what God is saying here. And so it says here, and I will carry you away at the same time, verse 4, and you should know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant might be with the sons of Levi, said Jesus Almighty. Now, when I think of the sons of Levi, and God always lay a foundation, he does, always lays a foundation with teaching. He feeds you a little bit at a time of the truth, lays foundation. We talked recently in the sermons recently about how Levi, Moses told, the people, whoever is on the side of Jesus, come stand by me. And the Levites came and stood by Moses after the people had worshipped the golden calf. We saw just or a week, couple weeks ago, or a week, couple weeks ago, or a week ago, Perm, people in Mexico worshipping the fire and the calf 
the ball down to Mexico on the parent. So all of this comes in line. God lays foundations here a little, there a little. He's laying foundations. And the people in the book of Exodus who stood by Jesus, who stood by his servant Moses, were the Levites. And Moses commanded the Levites to go through the crowd, slashing and killing some of the wicked. Many thousands of people were killed. And the Levites, by their obedience to the word of Moses, and their faithfulness all the way to that extremity of going through the people, killing thousands of people for their disobedience and for their worship of the golden calf, they became priests because they did that. That's why they became priests. They were blessed by their obedience to Moses in that war, in that killing. Now he said he has a covenant here in this verse. God has a covenant, a contract, an agreement with the sons of Levi. And that's when the covenant was made with the Levites. He said, I will be sons. Send it in your seed. It's your seed. It's your seed. So it says here, I have a covenant with the sons of Levi. Verse 5. My covenant of life and peace was with him, and I gave it to him that he might reverently fear me, and that he might be awestruck at my name, at the name of Jesus. Amen. The law of truth was in his, in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked before me directly, directing his way in peace, and he turned many from unrighteousness. Amen. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, at the mouth of God. It doesn't say uh, through writings of Moses, but rather from the mouth of God, directly from God. For he is the messenger or the voice of Jesus Almighty. Amen. Apostles and prophets, and sometimes even pastors, hopefully, amen, the Levites, even though the Levite priesthood, of course, is done away with, but still yet, according to prophecy, that God ministers, ministers, ministers today, even though the Levite priesthood is done away with, he still considers ministers, true ministers, true servants of his, as in the office of the Levites. Okay? I have uh, given the verse for that before in a recent sermon. And the ministers and the apostles and the prophets, they are the messengers of Jesus Almighty. They are his voice, his hands, his feet on the earth. The whole body of Christ is his hands and feet and mouth and ears, eyes upon the earth. But especially the prophets and the apostles are the voices of God upon this earth. Verse 8. But you have turned aside, not talking about the Levites now. He was talking about the Levites. But now he's talking to the general population and the priests that had descended from 
the holy man Levite. He comes down to the modern generation now that he's talking to, and he says, but you have turned aside from the way and caused me to fail in following the Levite originally to God, people, to God, people, to God and kept people from unrighteousness and delivered people from unrighteousness. But it came down to that modern generation during Malachi's day that the priests were leading people uh, away from the law of God. And you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, said Jesus Almighty. And I have made you despised and cast out among all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Meaning, uh, hypocrites and have you not all one father did not one theos create you why have you forsaken every man his brother to profane the covenant of your forefathers Judah has been forsaken and an abomination has been committed in Jezreel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the holy things of Jesus which he delighted in and has gone after other gods Jesus will utterly destroy the man that does these things until he has even cast them, cast down from out of the tabernacles of Jacob and from among them that sacrifice to Jesus Almighty. Verse 13. And these things which I hated, you did. You covered with tears the altar of Jesus, crying and groaning because of trouble. Made to your may to have respect to your may to have respect to your sacrifice or to receive anything from your hands as welcome yet you said why because Jesus has borne witness between you and the wife of your youth whom you have forsaken and yet she was your partner and the wife of your covenant so like I said at first glance as we read this it's going it's going to seem like it confirms what Paul said to stay with the wife not forsake her not divorce her but after i read a little bit more we're going to dissect it better get deeper and you're going to see how it actually proves paul wrong but first let's get an overall reading you've forsaken her she was your partner she was the wife of your covenant that's important right there the wife of your covenant go ahead and underline covenant to help us keep where we are and how to get back to this. Underline the word covenant. Verse 15. And did he not do well? And there was a residue of his spirit. But you said, what does Theos seek but a seed? But take you heed to your spirit and forsake not the wife of your youth. But if you should hate your wife and put her away, say of Jesus, Theos of Jezreel, then ungodliness shall cover your thoughts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and forsake them not. Forsake them not. You that have provoked Theos with your words, but you said, wherein have we provoked him? <clears throat> in that you say, everyone that does evil is a pleasing object in the sight of Theos, and he takes pleasure in such. That's what you say. This is evil. And where is Theos of justice? Where is God? You know, does God see us? Does God see our sins? These were how you have provoked Theos. Now, let's dissect some of this. Let me uh, <clears throat> look a 
prepare some translations here. Give me a minute while I uh, prepare some translation. Okay, let me look at verse 11. Let's read verse 11 again. Judah has been forsaken, and an abomination has been committed in Jezreel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holy things of Jesus, which he delighted in, and has gone after other gods. Now, why is it talking about other gods there? When you read the entire Bible, other gods is talking about heathen gods, foreign gods. Some of the other translations, New American Standard says uh, foreign gods. And that's what it would be, foreign gods, because the true God is the God of Israel. Amen? And there's only one God of Israel. Of the, of the true Israel, of the true Israelites, of those that really serve the Lord, we have one God. But when you're talking about other gods, you're talking about the gods of the Assyrians, of the Romans, of the Greeks, of the Catholics, of the Mormons, so forth, so forth, many other These are strange gods, foreign gods. Amen. Now, when I read this, when I read this, And New American Standard makes it more clear, and I have to go through this. I've not had time yet to go through this to see if some of the words need to be better translated in AOB because God just gave me this last night, okay? But I will be going through this to see if there's any words that need to be clarified or not. I'll have to do that another time. But the New American Standard says it like this. Let me read this to you. I'm going to read it in verse 10 and go down. Verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and abomination has been committed in, in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. <clears throat> married the daughter of a foreign god. That's verse 11. So that's a different wording. But that led me to something. And this is where it was a divine revelation. I had already written more than once, more than once, to study the topic of interracial marriages. And I had that planned, 
to study that in depth, to study it deeply, to re-examine the whole issue of interracial marriage in mind. Lord led that however the Lord led me, however the Lord led me, however the Lord led me, to examine it and learn the truth and not go by any assumptions or previous assumptions or previous beliefs. I had that written down, I had it planned, it was still in my mind, it was still in my heart. And then not even thinking about that, but thinking about marriage and divorce, this verse comes up. Okay? And whether it's correctly translated or not, it comes up about marrying a daughter of foreign gods. So then, reading that in the American Standard, I thought to myself, is this husband that I'm telling this woman to leave, is this husband a Gentile? Is he a foreigner? What race is he? Now, I was thinking, well, no, he, he, he's not, uh, he's not black. I'm not, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not prejudiced at all. But is he black or some other race? What, what race? Uh, God's shown because is God shown because is God showing me something about interracial marriages here? This is, at least in New American Standard, talking about interracial marriages, that it was wrong that Judah broke the covenant, or somebody broke the covenant, of where they married the daughters of foreign gods, and they married the daughters of the Gentiles, okay? So that's interracial marriages. So is this an interracial marriage, even though I don't think it is? So I type in the name of the husband on Google, and lo and behold, the very first top main, not the number one, not on the top of the page, but the first relevant, the first relevant significant search result that I could find, and the only relevant search result I could find for this person was a Hindu version of Facebook. A Hindu version of Facebook. And showing that one of the groups that he subscribes to is I Love Cows. So, but then once he's not a Hindu, he's not from India, he's not from India, as far as I know, as far as I could tell. He he's, does not have dark skin, he does not appear to be Gentile. He looks like a, a, a white man. There's nothing else more in his profile showing any symbolism or any other indication that he follows Hinduism or anything like that. But the only relevant search result that actually showed the, act, the actual true person, the only one that did actually refer to him and not someone else, was a Hindu version of Facebook in the Hindi Hindi language showing I love cows which is a, 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 a god a false god of Hinduism they worship cows so even though upon father search he's not Hindu and there's no other symbolism of that why was that the only search result revenant to him that's divine 
That's miracle. Amen. Because then, once you actually sign into Facebook and look deeper, all the Hindu go away. All the Hindu language. He doesn't even have a Hindu, as far as I know, version of Facebook for but you that was the Google search result. How is that possible? Unless God performed his works, his divine revelation. Amen. Now, when you would deal with interracial marriages, it's not really the color of the skin that God is concerned about, but rather the religion. Amen. The reason God had told the Hebrews to not intermarry with certain Gentile tribes was because they had false gods. He was protecting his bride. God was protecting his bride from committing adultery with false gods. That was what really God was really concerned about. Not skin color, but rather, don't marry people who are unbelievers. That's really the context of this about interracial marriages. Even if you ignore Malachi 2 and look at other passages where it's more clear about interracial marriages and God forbidding the Hebrew men from being with certain tribes of the Gentiles, the point that sees rather is the spin O covenant, the spin O covenant, the spiritual principle was always do not marry on believer. Do not marry somebody who worships false gods or even who does not marry, uh, who does not believe in the true God. Amen. That was God's way. That was God's law. Amen. That wouldn't change. That would not change. God protects his bride. God protects his people, his flock, his children, his congregation, his called out ones. That law has not changed as far as the spirit of that law. Do not marry unbelievers. And we must confess the facts of reality that even if someone claims to be an atheist, they worship the devil, whether they confess it or not, whether they realize it or not. They don't comprehend that they are worshiping a God, but they still are. They are still worshiping a false God. Everybody either worships God or the devil in their life. Amen. The spiritual principle is still the same. Now in Malachi 2, um, people were forsaking, people were forsaking the wife of the covenant, going back to where we underlined in verse 14. The wife of the covenant. Let's think of that word covenant. A covenant in the Bible is holy unto the Lord. It is agreement in the context of marriage. It is, a, it is an agreement between God and that man and that woman. And in the context of the Bible, a covenant is holy unto the Lord. Amen. So then I have to ask myself, what is a holy covenant? 
in marriage. A holy covenant in marriage is a believer with a believer who is in agreement with that covenant who signs their name mentally, spiritually on that dotted line and says, I agree with the Lord. I agree to take care of my wife in the name of Jesus. And I agree to marry this man. I agree to marry this woman, even though we know actually that sex is marriage. But nevertheless, if it's done right, if it's done right in the original purpose of God, you enter into that sex knowing that you are taking that person as your husband or wife. Okay, if it's done right. And if it's a holy and him, the guy and him, the guy and the girl. But if it's not like that, it is not a holy covenant. If it is an unbeliever that does not even believe in God, he's not going to sign the paper mentally, spiritually. He has not entered into a covenant with God. How can you say? How you can how can you say? That unbeliever has entered into has entered into a holy covenant with his wife and God. Amen. You can't leave God out. If there's a holy covenant that should not be broken, and that should be until death do we part, you can't leave God out. And an unbeliever cannot enter into such covenant. And even if they attempt to, through sex and legal marriage, God does not recognize it. If he does recognize it, it's only because he recognizes your sin and not the covenant. Amen. And what would be repentance in this situation? What would be repentance if a Hebrew man or a true follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, had made the mistake, had wrongfully, ignorantly, or on purpose, wrongfully entered into unholy matrimony. Amen. Because it wouldn't be holy matrimony. Amen. Why, if they had made this mistake and entered in, into unholy matrimony, and then they realized they made a mistake somewhere down the road, what would be the repentance? You answer that before I answer it. Amen. Repentance is not just confession that you did wrong. Repentance is not just realizing and confessing with your mouth in prayer that you did wrong. Repentance is fixing the problem. So what would be repentance? If you have entered into an unholy matrimony, into an unholy union against the will of God, against the law of God, against the commandment of God with an unbeliever, the answer is simple. Divorce, leaving the unbeliever. Whether you use Malachi 2 and you are married, or rather we look at other scripture that forbid, that forbids marrying people that follow false gods. 
the answer, the solution, the repentance would be leaving that person who worships false gods because light and darkness cannot coexist in the same house. Amen? And we should not walk hand in hand in kissy kissy dovey dovey with the devil. Amen? Now, as I said, I had it written down, I had it planned to study into interracial marriages, but yet I wasn't going to study into it last night. I was looking about marriage and divorce, when it's acceptable, when it's not acceptable, and yet God led me to the interracial marriages, which is not really about color, but about belief, who the different nations worship. Do they worship the God of Israel or not? That's what that's really about. He led me to that. To answer what I had already needed to look up. And used it as a divine revelation, even on Google search, to show me that this man, even though he is a white man, has the spirit of heathen, pagan, pagan, demonic, Satan worship. As if that he was a Hindu, even though he's not. Far as I know. Amen. God was saying to me, look at what I am showing you right in front of your face. This man is identified by God Almighty as a heathen pagan, and therefore marriage with him is forbidden. That's exactly what God was saying. And I don't see how anybody could deny that with that revelation of what I saw with my eyes. Amen. The New American Standard says, Daughter of a foreign god. And the footnote in this particular Bible says this about that. In verse 11 that a worshiper of an idol was considered to be its child. A worshiper of an idol was considered to be its child. So in other words, if you worship the devil, you are a child, children of the devil, corn. I say that, I say that because that was an old, 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 old horror movie. And that theme of horror movies just keeps coming back up with this man constantly. Child of the devil. Children of the corn. If they worship the devil, then they are children of the devil. And they don't have to confess it for that to be the reality. An atheist is nothing more than a devil worshiper for truth. Amen. Malachi chapter 2 and all the verses of the Bible of the Old Testament that, that show that we should not marry unbelievers proves Paul and Peter both wrong that it's not right to forever stay and forbear forever. Their general principle might be right to try to work it out. But it should not be long-suffering all the way until Christ comes. Amen.
Now, let's move over back to the New Testament. Let's go back to Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Chapter 1. One Corinthians five or six. One Corinthians chapter five or six. This is important as we head toward Passover, and this is all a process of heading toward Passover, preparing to examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith or we truly fully surrendered to Christ. We sung that song before services or before the sermon saying, I surrender all. Have we really surrendered all? Amen. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire mass of bread or dough? A little leaven leavens the entire lump of bread. In other words, if you give the devil an inch, he would take a mile. If you give the devil half of the bed, he would take the entire with him. Give the devil an inch, he devil an inch, he devil an inch, he would take ten thousand miles. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. All of it, if you let the devil in and you live with the devil, if you live with the devil, how can you be sanctified? Amen. What benefit is there to remove all the evil books and all the evil symbols from the house if you're going to keep the spirit the soul, the person that is the magnet to the demons. The person that you live with is more dangerous and is a more powerful magnet for devils than the books and the symbols themselves. A book or symbol cannot speak or move. Amen. But that person you live with can speak and move and will work against you. People are much more important to move out of your lives than just books. I know that for a fact. Many years ago when I left the homosexual lifestyle, it was not good enough just for me to throw away books. I also had to physically leave my sexual life and to stay away from all homosexuals. It had to be an entire change of lifestyle. It would not have been sufficient to continue to live with a homosexual partner and say that we're just roommates and I will serve the Lord because an alcoholic should not live in the back room of a bar. Amen. What fellowship does light have to do with darkness. It needs to be an entire change of life if we are going to follow the Lord God Almighty. 
I'm not going to turn there right now, but 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 says, They all ran in a race, but only one can win. Amen. We are to run the race to win. Even if it does leave somebody behind. All run in a race. But only one can win. And we know what I just quoted. What fellowship does light have to do with darkness? That's in 2 Corinthians 6.14. I won't turn there right now, but you can check that out sometime. What fellowship does light have to do with darkness? With God, God is of shadow with God. God is of shadow with God. God is light and total light. There is no darkness in God. Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same house. And isn't man and woman one flesh? So are you going to be one flesh with darkness? Are you going to be one flesh with darkness? Of an unbeliever? That's not right. That's being double-minded, is it not? Being double-minded to be one flesh with darkness? Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same house. One or the other will cast out the other. If not, then the light is not bright enough. Amen. If that light is coexisting with the darkness that light cannot be very bright amen everyone serves a god but how brightly do you shine for christ if you shine for christ 100 percent, it's going to be so bright the darkness cannot stand your existence Amen. If you shine brightly for Christ, the darkness will not be able to withstand your existence. It's going to work. It's going to work. Let's go to chapter Matthew 16 now. There's a lot in Matthew. I'll try to move quickly, but there's a lot in Matthew that we need to consider. Because we got to consider the words of Jesus Christ. We cannot end this study without reading what Jesus himself said. Amen. Amen. Paul said something. Peter said something. Malachi said something. But let's see what Jesus said. It is not fair to go only by the writings of men. What did Jesus say? Amen. Matthew 16 Verse 24 through 26. Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, hello, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow after me. Amen. How can you say, deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself, and crucify yourself, and taking up your cross and followed him, and still live and coexist and walk hand in hand 
and serve an unbeliever in the same way that you would serve a believing husband. That's not denying yourself. That's not taking up your cross. Amen. Verse 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. In other words, if you want to be saved by God, you have to lose your life. That means a total change of life. A total change. A total transformation. Because the old man is gone and the new man has come. You have died in Christ and risen with Christ. The old person is gone. How can you say the old person is gone and you're still living the same life, the same location, with the same people? That's not a new life. That's the same old way. Amen. Have you lost your life? Have you changed dr dramatically? Have you changed the person you live with? No. 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 You have not taken up the cross. You have not been crucified. You have not died to yourself. You're still following your own will and your own way. That's the majority of the people listening. To be a true follower of Christ is more than just believing. Believing is not enough. If you're going to follow Christ, you got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. And the cross is heavy. Very heavy. It is a huge sacrifice to carry your cross. And follow me. It says, verse 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will find salvation. For what will it profit a person if he gains the whole world, if you gain your husband? What would it profit the world, uh, you? What would it profit you? What would it profit a person? If he, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul. Or what will a person give in its chain? Amen. That's what Jesus said. Look over chapter 8. Go down to previous chapters. Chapter 8. Tell you very few people, very few, very, very few people that have come to Christ or think they have come to Christ have denied themselves. Amen. And they have not taken up any kind of a heavy cross. Their life has not changed at all. Matthew 8, verse 19. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds are there. They have nests. But the Son of Mankind has no words to lay his head. In other words, Jesus said, <laughs> in different words, basically, you about to think what you just said. <laughs> you about to think what you just said. You're going to follow me wherever I go? 
You're going to surrender to me 100%. You don't know what you're talking to. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Because I'm homeless. I ain't got nowhere to go. Even the animal lay down. I don't. You really know what you're saying. You really know what you're saying to me. Amen. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Master, permit me or allow me first to go and bury my dad first. Let me go bury my dad. Then I will come. Then after I get this done, after I take care of my dad, I even though he's dead, let me go bury him. And then, then I will follow you. But Jesus said to him, follow me. In other words, right here, right now. Put me first. Amen. Follow me. And allow the dead to bury their own dead. Amen. He was saying, let the lost, the spiritually dead, the unbelievers, bury the dead. Those that are not faithful to Christ. Those that are still living their lives, but they're spiritually dead. They're walking zombies out there in this world. Everybody. Amen. Let the spiritually dead, let those that do not follow me because they have no life in them. Let those who do not follow me because they have no life in them, let them, dad, take dad. No business. No business. Taking care of that. You got to follow me now, not later. You got to be willing to sacrifice. You know what? If this man had obeyed Jesus, his whole family would have said, well, he has forsaken us. He wouldn't even help us bury his own dad. That man would have been called by his family a wicked man. They would have said, he is wicked, he is evil, he has forsaken us, he has forsaken his own dad, he has forsaken everybody, he has gone radical, he has gone extreme, he is following a cult, he is following a false prophet. They would have said, oh man, he would have, he had, he would have really suffered by following God and putting God first. He would have denied himself and took up his cross and had a total change of life. His family would have cursed him out, cussed him out upside down and, and right. Amen. Following Christ is a whole lot more than what make. Amen. Does the same body still does the same way. Body still does the same way today. Let me go do this first. Let me go do that other thing first. Let me go do, you know, I got to take care of my child. I got to take care of my husband. I got to take care of my wife. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got a job. I got to live. I got to pay the electric bill. I got to pay the rent. I got to do this. And they always put Christ second, third, or last. Amen. God wants all of us, not just part of us. He wants full surrender, not just partial surrender. He wants total, full surrender in faith that he'll provide. 
that, he, that it'll be okay if we just follow him. He wants us to put our eyes, our attention, our energy, and our mind upon him. And not try to reason our way out of it. Amen. The principal lesson of tithing is putting God first. That's the lesson of giving tithes. Is to put God first. Not last. Not second or third. But God first in all things. Amen. Now look at this next chapter. Chapter 9. Matthew 9 verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9, and we're going to read down through verse 13. Matthew, as Jesus went on from there, as Jesus went on from there, Jesus went on from there, he saw a person called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. That was his job. He was a tax collector. He was an IRS man. And he said, Jesus said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, got up and followed him. He didn't say why. He didn't say where. He didn't say for how long. Can I be back here in an hour? He didn't say, let me give two weeks notice. He didn't make any excuses. He looked up at the eyes of the Lord, heard the voice of God, and he got up immediately and he followed Christ from that moment forth without looking back. He didn't try to reason himself out of it. He didn't say, let me go bury my dad first. He didn't say, well, let me call and tell my girlfriend I'm not coming home tonight. He didn't care about any person, anything, any job, any money, any situation that would have hindered him from following Christ right then, right there. How many of you would have done that? Amen. Verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining, many tax collectors were the same with Jesus and were dining with Jesus and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Luke explains that Matthew held a feast for Jesus. Now, Matthew had just quit his job, lost his income. Now, even though it says he got up and followed him, it doesn't use the word quit his job, but we know he did because he followed Jesus as homeless men for three and a half years. Amen. So we know he did quit his job. Okay? That's just common sense. And even though he had quit his job, he held a feast, a banquet for Jesus, according to the writings of Luke. And this is why Jesus was reclining in Matthew's house before they went out into the fields and traveling many towns. So he was really exercising faith, buying up a whole bunch of food for this feast. And many tax collectors came. So other people he knew, all his friends, his buddies came. He invited a lot of people, whether they were sinners or saints or what. He invited a lot of people. And they were all dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, teacher, eating, eating, eating with tax collectors and sinners. But when Jesus heard this, he said, Is it not those 
who are healthy? Is it not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick? It's not those who are healthy, but those that are sick that needs a doctor, a physician. Amen. Now, very clearly, he was not against doctors. Many, many, many people say that if you go to a doctor or if you take medicine, it's witchcraft. That's silly. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. It's not biblical. Very clearly, when Jesus said this, he does believe in doctors for the sick. Absolutely. Amen? Amen. But he was saying that he wanted to help those sinners. Amen. He was saying he was wanting to witness to those sinners. Amen. But he didn't live with them. Who did he live with? The twelve disciples who followed him, who sacrificed their lives, their jobs, their marriages, their children, everything. You know these men had wives. You know they had children. Come on now. Twelve men? And they're all single? No. Come on now. Use some common sense. They had children and wives. But they left them in for of all the ones that were in the southern world. Southern world. Amen. In verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire, quote from Isaiah and Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. He came to call sinners, to witness and save sinners. Amen. Now, some people twist this. Many people, most people, most preachers, most denominations, most websites, most books, even most Bibles that have the notes in it, they all twist this verse. Even though it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, that does not mean that he does not require sacrifice. That's not what it means. And the reason I know it is that's not what it means is because look what he just said previously. He commanded people to, to sacrifice their own families, to forsake their families, to not even finish burying their own dead parents. Come on now. It was a sacrifice. Amen. Matthew sacrificed his job. He was requiring the other man to sacrifice his own family. Another passage in the Bible says that he told somebody to sell everything he owned. He required sacrifice. So why then, so why then, so why then did he say this? He said, learn what it means. So he didn't say, I don't want sacrifice, but rather he said, learn what it means. That's different. Amen. Learn what it means. Even the very next chapter, when we get into it, and actually we may have already read it, and maybe it's written more than once. But anyway, it says in the Bible that we are to take up our cross and deny ourselves. That also is a perfect example that, yes, we need a sacrifice for God. And Matthew had done that. And that's what he wants. Yes, absolutely. But what it means is mercy comes first. And he was showing mercy to these sinners. That's what it means is that mercy comes first. He died for us while we were still yet sinners. 
Amen. Mercy is first. He doesn't want us to stay lost forever. He seeks us out while we're still lost. Eventually, we're still going to have to we're still going to have to make a sacrifice when you read the whole Bible. Okay? But mercy comes first. That's why he said learn what that means. He is reaching out to the lost. He's reaching out to those sinners to witness and testify to them. But what if they would not receive his word? What if the husband or the wife or the friend or the sinner or the tax collector says to you or to him, I reject it. I won't hearken unto you. I will not receive this word of truth. I do not believe this word. I will not follow this word. Even if a sod appears in the sky on the exact date of parent, I still will not follow this word. What would Christ do then? He would say to that person, get out. Amen? Amen. He would curse that person? Absolutely. Amen. He does not expect us to long suffer forever. And he would not stay with that sinner. He would depart from that sinner, according to the Bible itself. He would depart from that sinner. He would not continue to long suffer with a person that totally rejects what he had just witnessed to them. And he does leave us and he does forsake us. If we were not hearken to him and mercy first, and yes, he called us while we were still yet sinners, but we had still yet sinners, but we had a choice to make, and we made the choice to follow Christ a hundred percent. Hopefully we have made that choice. If we say no, I reject you, what does Christ do? He leaves us, he rejects us right back, he forsakes us. It is not biblical and it is not accurate. It is not true to say that God never forsakes us. Many people, many people always, always say, because it's a feel-good message. It's a tickle-the-ear message. That no matter what you do, no matter what you do, you can forsake God. You can stop trusting God. You can stop having faith in God. But God won't forsake you. Hogwash. Bullcrap. As a lie of the devil. The Bible teaches over and over again that he will not honor nor hearken to the prayers of sinners and that he will cast us out from his presence. Our wickedness, our sins, our unfaithfulness, our unbelief, our us not trusting him, he will turn his back on us if we turn our back on him first. Absolutely. That's what the Bible actually teaches. Rather than this feel good, tickle the ear message that everybody tickle the ear message that everybody wants to post on Facebook and me with. His arm is always stretched out if we seek him, but he's not always watching us and guarding us if we are not following him. The whole lesson of the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, where it talks about the two goats, is one goat is cast out of the camp because it does not have atonement for its sins. And that represents lost people. Amen. The lost 
she the uh, agape goat or the uh, the the uh, scrape the scapegoat the scapegoat is cast out from the camp because the atonement of the blood of Christ does not apply for the forgiveness of its sins. It is cast out. Adam and Eve got cast out from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Our sins separate us from God. Amen. And if this be so, if sin separates us from God, then how can we live in unity and coexistence and peace in the same house as a sinner? If sin separates us from God and we are cast out from his presence because of the presence of sin, how can rather they are husband, roommate, roommate, roommate. How can we have that compromise? Live with a sinner when sin separates us from God. What fellowship does light have to do with darkness? Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 5. Now, Matthew 10 is an explosive, atomic weapon against traditional doctrine. Amen. Matthew 10 is rarely ever read in any church. In any church, in any denomination. Matthew 10 is very rarely ever, ever, ever read because the whole chapter is explosive, atomic weapon against Babylon. Amen. Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12, these 12 men, his disciples, Jesus sent out after instructing them, quote, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. That was a temporary instruction because later he said in the last chapter of Matthew, go to all the world. Okay? So that was a temporary instruction to the disciples to go only to the Israelites, not to the Gentiles. Verse 5, but rather go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is, is here, is what? Heal the sick, heal the sick, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out the demons, freely you received. In other words, you have received the power of God, now freely give it. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, nor even a bag for your journey, or even two coats for sandals, an extra pair of sandals. No, don't even take an extra staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. In other words, he told the twelve disciples to depend on the tithes and free will offerings and gifts of the people as they go traveling the towns, witnessing, evangelizing, and baptizing and healing to depend upon the gratitude of the people. But later on, after discovering, if you read the whole Bible, after discovering the people did not do that, the people did not support financially the disciples. Because people don't like giving their tithes. People don't like giving free will offerings. People don't like supporting the truth. People don't want the truth. And they did not support these disciples. And he told them to go and sell stuff. Go and sell stuff in order to get it. 
the supplies that they need and not depend on the people no more because they were not doing what they were supposed to do. But nevertheless, his initial instruction was to depend upon the people. In verse 11, In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. Find out who is worthy and who is not worthy of receiving the truth. Amen. Not everybody is worthy to hear the gospel, to hear the truth. Amen. And stay at the house, if they are worthy, stay at the house until you leave that city. And as you enter that house, give it your blessing. Why? Because you have determined that house, that man, that woman, that family is worthy of the word of God. Therefore, give it your blessing and stay there and depend upon their gratitude and their tithes and their food and their resources. Verse 13. But, verse 13, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, if it turns out it's not worthy, take back your peace. Take it back. Yeah, be an Indian giver. Amen. Now, traditional now traditional Babylon says long suffer. Keep begging that person to get saved. Keep witnessing to that person. Stay there and stay there and stay there and just keep witnessing to your friend. Just keep witnessing to your husband. Just keep witnessing to that person. Forever and ever and ever, 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 never ending. Just keep hoping. But this scripture said, take back your peace. Because you have discovered they are not worthy. Verse 14. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, the words of truth, as you go out of that house, or as you go out of that city, shake the dust off your feet. Which, like I've said many times before, is a curse. Curse that person. Curse that house. As you leave, don't just say, uh, I agree to disagree. Don't just say, uh, well, I'll come back tomorrow. Or I'll send you a letter in the mail. And I know that you're going to believe sooner or later. But rather, shake the dust off your feet. It could also be translated as the ashes. As in the fact that that house will be consumed by fire. Shake the ashes off your feet is another way to translate. Verse 15, amen, I say to you, it would be more tartable, it would be more tartable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, for the homosexuals, in the day of judgment, at the great white throne judgment, than for that city. That is so significant. That you never, they rarely ever mention that, and if they do, they don't explain it in the Babylonian churches, amen? Because they don't even know what it means. This is so significant. Psalm and Galora, the town, the city that was destroyed by fire where there was many, many ashes left behind from the fire and the, the brimstone, that brimstone that came down from heaven. Amen. This confirms as ashes. Shake the ashes off your feet. Amen. Because that house will be consumed. Amen. This land of homosexuals is going to receive mercy. 
What? Think about this. Tolerance. If they are doomed, if the homosexuals and other residents of Sodom and Gomorrah is already in hell, if they are already burning in hell forever and ever and ever, they're being tortured by, by uh, pitchforks of the devil, and there's demons who are basically living a good life because that's what they enjoy doing, because that's what they enjoy doing is torturing people. If, if these devils are living in their own form of heaven, their own form of paradise, enjoying, having fun, torturing billions of humans forever and ever and ever without end, which is so ridiculous, silly, then how can there be tolerance for Solomon Galore? But yet Jesus said there would be tolerance for Solomon Galore, more tolerance than for this house who did not accept the word of God that came from these disciples. And we know we know that we are all disciples of Jesus Christ if we follow him in the truth and have been baptized in the truth and have correct doctrine, one God, not three, and all the correct doctrine and follow God 100%, then we are his disciples. Amen. So this does not say long suffer forever. But these homosexuals will receive more tolerance because they're going to be resurrected in the second resurrection. After the thousand years, after the millennium, the second resurrection. In Isaiah 65, verse 20, talks of when even the infant and even the old man, the sinner, the sinner, all people that rise in that second resurrection is equal 37. The valley of dry bones, bone to back of bone, a physical resurrection to live a hundred years, regardless of what age you was when you died. Both the infant and the old man, they will all live to be another hundred years in that life. And in that life, homosexuals that died in Sodom and Gomorrah will have chance for repentance. There will be tolerance, mercy, and grace for those people to learn how to repent. Learn about Jesus. Learn about the commandments of God. Be instructed and guided to the truth. But that's then. That's then. But right now, if the people do not receive the truth when you witness to them, curse them. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah the first time was cursed. Amen. Now let's move forward to verse 16. 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd, wise and crafty, as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That doesn't mean harmless. It just means innocent. That's a different word. But beware of mankind. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> beware of mankind for they will and, and, and scourge you in the synagogues, in the churches, even among those that keep the seventh day, the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings, for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour. Amen. And let's move forward down here. Let's go all the way down to verse 34. 
Verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'd like for you to underline that word not. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 35, I came to set a man against his dad. What? What? Wait, 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 wait a minute. You mean Jesus wants to cause family division? That's what it says. And it's true. This is what it says. This is God's own words. Paul. But Jesus, but Jesus said he did not come to bring peace but a sword. He came to bring division in your own house, in your own family. Amen. And a daughter against her mom. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be the members of their own household. But you know that once that occurs, that household will not stay united. People will be leaving. Amen. Verse 37. He who loves dad or mom more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son. He who loves his children or daughter, his son or daughter, more than me, he is not worthy of me. Verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So this is repeated. Amen. But this time explained more. He explained it more this time when he said this. Amen. He's saying to, to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him, you have to forsake You're going to have to. How can you say that you have taken up your cross that you have denied yourself, that you have fully followed Christ 100%, and that you're going to follow Christ 100%, and yet you're not willing to forsake anyone. You're not willing to forsake your son. You're not, you said so. And you're not willing to forsake your husband, your mom, your dad. You're not willing to forsake anyone. So how can you say you're going to follow Christ 100%? Hogwash. Amen. Following Christ is a whole lot more than the Babylonian churches make it out to be. Amen. A lot more. It is radical. You cannot follow Christ 100% without being radical. Amen. You either be a radical follower of Christ or you be no follower of Christ. There's no in-between. Amen. Some of you may say, but Pastor Tim, I know you wouldn't do this. Yeah, I did. I did forsake my dad and my mom and my favorite nephew, my favorite uncle, my favorite uncle, my favorite uncle. 
Amen. All of those people, and all of them my favorites, I did forsake all those family members for Christ, as well as my homosexual lover that I was with for like 10 years. And that whole life that I left behind. So I know what it's like. And yes, it's tough. And yes, there will be fights. And yes, there will be resistance. A whole lot. Just as the man, if he had obeyed Christ and had forsaken his dad and had not helped his family bury his dad, yeah, his whole family would have turned against him. But that's what Christ came to do. Christ came to bring a sword. To cause division in the house. Why did Christ come to do that? Because he wants to know who will stand with him. As Moses said, under the influence of the holy breath of God, choose who you will serve. Come and stand with me if you stand with Jesus Christ. Christ came to say to see who Will you stand flesh and blood? Or are you going to stand with the Spirit of God? Spirit of God. The Bible says if you are born again, you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, and you are of the Spirit, and you are in God, and He is in you, even as Christ was in the Father and Father in Him. When you are truly born again and you truly surrender to God 100%, you don't even have flesh and blood family anymore because your real family is your true brothers and sisters. Even Christ said, even having a good mom and a good brother, Christ said, who is he that is my mother? Who is she that is my brother? Who is he my, my, that is my brother? But he that does the will of my father. He is my mother. He is my brother. Amen. We don't have physical husband or wife, child, parents. If we are in the spirit and walk not in the flesh. Amen. We do if they walk in agreement with the spirit and if they are of one mind, one accord with us in the body of Christ. But if they're not in one mind and one spirit in the body of Christ, then no, we do not have a physical or wife, wife, or brother or sister or mom or dad, unless they walk in the spirit of Christ with us. Amen. This is why we forsake our physical birthdays once we get born again because the person that was born in the flesh no longer exists they have been crucified they are dead they no longer exist we are now a new creature in christ we don't have physical birthdays as true followers of christ but we have a new spiritual birth and we celebrate our spiritual birthdays amen In verse 40, Matthew 10, verse 40, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet, 
by the authority of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. That's good. That's not bad. That's good. In other words, if you will obey Moses or Noah or even the scribes and the Pharisees when they were in Moses' seat, even though they were wicked sinners, Jesus said, the people that were in front of him on that day, he said, obey, to obey, to obey the scribes and the Pharisees, but do not do as they do, but to obey them and do what they said, because they was in Moses' seat, and that's what he said. But those scribes and Pharisees of that day and that time, and the generation that he spoke that to, they're all gone, and they're all dead, and we have new apostles, we have new prophets, and we have new writings, and we have new revelations coming from God, and we have fresh word, a fresh word from God. Amen? Amen. We have a fresh word from God, because God is a living word. Amen. So you should receive the word of a prophet so that you can even receive the same reward as I. Amen. And he receives a righteous man that by the authority of a righteous man should receive a righteous man's rewards. These are good. In other words, hearken unto the voice of the Lord through the messengers of the Lord. Amen. Hearken unto the word of the Lord through the messengers that he sends. Amen. Now let's go back to chapter 5, because this is used all the time by the people that says you can't have any divorce except for adultery, and that's not what it says. And verse 32, and verse 32, and verse 32. Matthew 5 verse 31 says, it was said that whosoever sends away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except because of unrepentant sin. This is what the Alpha Bible says, the Alpha and Omega Bible translation. Except because of unrepentant sin makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, most of Babylon says that uh, unless you divorce because of adultery, but that's not what it says. There's no translation that says that, that I know of. If there is, it's a horrible translation because the word there in the Greek is not the word for adultery. It's most often in most Bibles translated as fornication. But we have to even translate even fornication because most people today do not understand the biblical definition of fornication. They just assume what it means. They always assume it's adultery or only sexual sin. Without the Bible, what occasion and what occasion and what all, all the different contexts is used in, it can mean many different things. Really, any kind of unrepentant spiritual sin, idolatry, graven images, Christmas trees, uh, Easter worship, all these things are considered by the Bible as being fornication, worshiping false gods, and many other sins. 
spiritual sins that are not even sexual are considered a fornication by the Bible. Check it out. Study it. Study it for yourselves. So it's not just adultery and it's not just sexual sins. But unrepentant sin, as the Alpha and Omega Bible translates it. So a man can divorce his wife for unrepentant sin. In other words, the general principle of God is that he wants a man and woman to stay together. That's what he wants, ideally. That's the ideal thing. But he does not want a baptized, saved, born-again believer compromising with the devil, living with, staying married to a Gentile, spiritually, a gen spiritually, a gen spiritually, a Gentile, spiritually, a heathen, pagan, demonic, devil worshiper. He doesn't want that. And in that case, whether you're a man or a woman, even though this is even though this is specific for men divorcing their lives, I have to ask you, does God allow women to commit sin, but not a man? Does God allow uh, or force? Does God force a woman to live with the devil, but not force men to live with the devil? Come on now. If it's one way, it's the other way too. If it's wrong to live with the devil, it's wrong to live with the devil. I don't care whether it's a male devil or a female devil. And there are such. Not, not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking. That's a whole nother topic. But to live with the devil, whether it's a, a, a one that takes a male row or one that takes a female row, to live with the devil is still living with the devil, whether you're a husband or a wife. Uh, is not, isn't that not the reality? The Bible deals mostly with men because men are supposed because men are supposed to be the leaders. Men are supposed to be the ones that set their foot down and say the way it is supposed to be in the house. It's meant for the man to be a man and set down the rules in the house that they're going to follow God. Amen. And everybody in the house will follow those rules that they're going to follow God. That's why it focuses on the man whether or not he can divorce the woman. But, even though it focuses on the man, the principle, the spiritual law, the spirit of the law is still true for even the woman. That whether you're male or female, you should not be living with the devil. Amen. Let's go over to the book of Luke. Over to the book of Luke real fast. Luke chapter 14. This, this is huge right here. And this proves the Alpha and Omega Bible as being the most accurate translation of the English Bible that it is on this planet right now. This proves it beyond any doubt. You cannot deny it once you read this verse. Luke 14 verse 26. Luke 14, 
Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and is not willing to, if and when necessary, to forsake his own dad and mom and wife and children and the brothers and the sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be, cannot be, you're not allowed to be my disciple, Jesus said. Now, King James, New American, NIV, ESV, and every other translation, almost every translation on this earth, and there are literally thousands of translations on this earth, and almost every one of them says, if you do not hate these people, if you do not hate your dad, your mom, your wife, your children, your brothers, and your sisters, and if you do not hate your life, you cannot be my disciple. That is crazy. That's crazy, ain't it? That's in unbiblical. That is unbiblical. The Bible says over and over that you got to love everyone, not hate everyone. Amen. So the correct translation is that you must be willing to forsake. Be willing to this proof. This proves. This proves the Alpha and Omega Bible as being the, 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 number one most accurate English translation, and really any language translation, that we have on this earth, that we know of. Amen. And not only does it prove that, it also proves that if it says, that you must be willing to forsake both parents. And if you must be willing to forsake your own children. And your wife and your brothers and your sisters. And even die if necessary. Then the only reason it leaves out the word husband. Is because it's focusing on the man. It's just focusing on the man. Because... It's supposed to be the men reading this Bible. It's supposed to be the men reading this and then teaching the principles of it to the women. Okay? So that's the only reason it leaves out that you should be willing to forsake your husband. That's the only reason. Okay? It's, it's not because that you're not allowed to. That went Okay, let's examine this. Okay. Would it make sense? Would it make sense that God says you got to be willing to forsake everybody on this earth, both parents and your sons and your daughters, your children, even your own life and your brother and your sister? You got to forsake everybody on this earth, but not the husband. No, don't forsake the husband because he is God. Hello? Amen? Amen. Some women, many women, most, most Christian women think you cannot forsake the husband. It don't matter what. You cannot forsake the husband. And to think that way puts the husband as being God. Amen. Because according to this verse, 
the spirit of this verse, the principle of this verse, is that you must be willing to forsake anyone and everyone, no exception. That is the spirit of this verse. Amen. And if you're not willing to, then you cannot be his disciple. You can't follow him. You can't. Because if you're not willing to forsake everything, then you're him back. And you're him back. And you're him back. And you're not serving God 100%. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody on earth has to forsake everybody. But rather that you must be willing to. If it's necessary. And I tell you, it is necessary to forsake at least some of your family. Absolutely. Absolutely necessary to forsake some people. If a person is going to stand in your face or in email or telephone and say that the word of God that you are sharing with them is wrong, that it's not true, that it's not correct, that you're deceived, that you're following a call just because you follow the truth, then what you should do is shake their ashes off your feet. Amen. And it don't matter who it is. Amen. Now, if it's a person, like I do have a lot of homeless friends and one cousin of mine that I do continue to long suffer with because they never, ever, ever say those words, you're wrong. This can't be right. You're teaching the truth. You're, you're deceived. You're a false prophet. You're a false prophet. You're a false prophet. They never say any of those. They listen. Even though they've not accepted, they've not accepted the truth yet. They've not repented yet. They're not following Christ yet. But they will at least hear me out without interrupting me, without, without, without totally rejecting it. Those are people that are worthy to at least continue at least a while longer. And it depends on the person, how long. But a person that says to you, whether it's husband, wife, or friend, wife or child or anybody, if they say to you that this word of God is false, then they are rejecting not just your words, but God's words. And once they reject it, they have made up their mind. And you're not going to change their mind. You might give them a few months, but I wouldn't long suffer forever. And I wouldn't suffer for decades with such a person that totally tramples underfoot the word of God. There should be a limit to how much time you waste with them. Amen. Now, another thing that comes up here is not only the husband and wife, but also the parents. You must be willing to forsake the parents. Now, yet, there's one of the Ten Commandments is honor your parents. And that's taught in other Bible verses as well, right? Honor your parents. That is true. But if your parents are of the devil, like my mom and my dad, 
I won't go no farther in that because I'm going to try to honor them. I'm going to try to show some restraint here in order to try to honor them. But if they are workers of the devil, like that mom and that dad, then you need to forsake them. What if your dad had been Hitler? You should have forsaken him. Amen. What if your mom was the black widow that married seven men and killed every one of them? Married, married, murdered everyone. And what if your mom was the black widow? Then you should forsake her. Amen. The honor only goes so far. Amen. If they are not honorable, if they are not honorable, if they don't honor God, if they are workers of the devil, then they do not deserve the principle, the spirit behind the commandment of honoring behind the commandment of honoring your parents was based upon the ideal that your parents would be followers of God. That's absolutely the truth. That commandment was based upon the ideal, the principle, that your parents would have taught you the scriptures from birth, that your parents would have led you in the truth, that your parents would have been followers of God and that you would honor them and respect them. And as the Bible says, to teach your children the commandments of God, it was laid upon that foundation. It was not trying to tell you that you have to live with Catholic, demonic, Pope worshipers. Amen. You've got to be willing to forsake Catholics. You've got to be willing to forsake Muslims. After you have presented the truth to them and they outright rejected it, you've got to be willing to forsake them because they have rejected your God. And they have trampled underfoot the word of God. How dare they, said David. How dare the giant Goliath to, to blaspheme in the name of the Lord. Amen. Here it is. To blaspheme my words. To blaspheme my words. To blaspheme my Lord by trampling underfoot the word of God. And reject his holy word of the seventh day and the commandments, the holy days, Passover, all of this and more, then they are not worthy to be called brother or sister or husband or wife or friend. Amen. To just say that you got to honor your parents and to stay with your husband, unrepentant, unbelieving husband or wife. That is to follow what I'm now going to call one principle theology. And that's a new term. You've heard me say many times over the years, one verse theology. Many, many people use like John 3.16. All you got to do is believe. One verse theology. But now I'm coming up with this new term. And, I, and I'm going to reserve the right to edit it and update it. But right now, I think we're going to call it one principle theology. And it's just as bad as one verse theology. To say you have to honor your parents without any exception, and that you have to stay with an unbelieving husband or wife without any exception, even though you could back it up with many verses, 
to honor your parents, to not get a divorce, but to stay with the unbelieving spouse, to stay with the unbelieving spouse. Even though you can use multiple verses, it's still one principle theology, which is just as bad as one verse theology. One principle theology uses many or several, more than one, select verse, select verse to support that theology. One principle theology considers verses more than one, but at the same time ignores many other verses. Amen. So to say that you have to honor your parents without any exception would ignore Luke 14, 26. Amen. And to say that a spouse has to stay with an unbelieving spouse forever without any, without any exceptions, then you have to ignore that same verse, Luke 14, 26, as well as ignore the whole chapter of Matthew 10 about division in the family and not coming to bring peace but a sword and forsaking your life and denying your life and taking up the cross and following him and all of that and more. You have to ignore a lot of verses, including the many verses, many, many verses in the Old Testament forbidding the Hebrew marriage, marriage with the Gentiles, marriage with those the daughters, with those the daughters or even the sons of foreign gods, those that follow foreign gods. That would be atheists. That would be Babylonian religions, Hindu religion, Buddhist religion, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, why names, Hebrew cults, any false religion. It, God forbids us from entering into that unholy matrimony. Amen. And if we do, the repentance of it would be to leave that unholy matrimony, which is not a holy covenant. So you don't have to worry about breaking God's holy covenant if your covenant is with the devil. If your covenant is with the devil, you should break that covenant. That would be repentance. Amen. Now let's consider for a moment the laws of submission to our masters, and the laws of submission to government and, and other masters upon the earth. Let's think of Daniel and the three young Hebrew men that was thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel and the other Israelite captive slaves, they were captives, they were slaves. They submitted to the wicked Babylonian government authorities, masters, as commanded by Scripture. And I submit obedient submission, submission to Russia and China when they invade and to many of the unjust laws and stuff like that and wicked governments and wicked kings. I teach that. I know what the Bible teaches about that. But Daniel and the three Hebrew men, they submitted to the wicked Babylonian masters as commanded by Scripture, but not when it hindered their own personal relationship with God. Daniel continued against the law to pray three times a day and abstained from foods sacrificed to idols and refused, the three Hebrew men or someone there in Daniel, refused to bow down at the graven images. 
So repeatedly, the Israelite men of God disobeyed their masters in order to serve God first and foremost and 100%. Amen. And when you think about other slaves where uh, the Israelites owned uh, slaves, not just the Babylonians owning Daniel as a slight law, and owning slaves, owning slaves, owning slaves in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, when the Israelites owned slaves, the if they owned a fellow Israelite slave, they were required to set those Israelite slaves free after serving them for six years. On the seventh year, they would be set free. And on the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, any Israelite slaves that they owned would be set free. Now, this was not true for the Gentile slaves that they owned because the Gentile slaves did not fall under that law because it says very specifically that if an Israelite or the Hebrew owns a Hebrew slave, let him go on the seventh year and on the Jubilee year. It does not say let go of the Gentile slave, okay? The Gentile slave would have been uh, inherited by the next son. They would have been passed down through the family in the in the will, the last will and testament, to uh, that man's son would inherit the slaves of his dad if they were Gentile slaves. And the reason I say this, bringing this up, is even he is a follower of God, a follower of God, follower of God. If he is a spiritual Israelite, if he is an Israelite physically or even spiritually, if he is an Israelite slave, even those would eventually be set free and not owned forever. Not owned forever. So if you are a woman and you consider yourself a slave to your husband, which I don't think the Bible really ever refers to it in that way, I don't think. But even if it did, and even if you do, and you're a slave to your husband, and you're a spiritual Israelite, after seven years, you're free. If you want to use verses about slavery, then let's use verses about slavery. If you want to present to me two scriptures about slavery, then let me present a third scripture about slavery. You're free after the sixth year. On the seventh year, you're set free. Amen. And speaking of submission to government and obedience to mankind, let's go over to the book of Acts. Acts 5. We're almost done here. Let's go over to Acts chapter 5, verse Acts 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey Theos 
rather than humans. Now, if you read that all by itself, you might think we should never obey humans. So you definitely got to read the whole Bible. And we know that there's many verses that says to submit yourself to the governors and to the kings, even to the wicked king, that we are to submit ourselves to the authorities, to pastors, to husbands, to government, and so forth, and slaves to masters. We're all, we are all supposed to submit ourselves to someone. Every one of us are submissive, supposed to be submissive to someone. Okay? But, having read the whole Bible and understanding that principle, and we must obey humans, and we must submit ourselves to the government authorities, we still must obey theos rather than humans. So what that really means in the common scriptures, including the surrounding scripture, the surrounding verse scripture, the surrounding verses, what that really means is when it comes in competition with God, if obeying man or staying with man or being submissive to a man would hinder your obedience to God, keeping the holy days, uh, if it would hinder you from uh, doing Passover communion in person, if you live in the United States, with or if you have a local congregation of truth, wherever it be on this earth, if that would be hindered by a man or woman, by anyone, then you should obey God and not man. Or if you can't come if you cannot do the pilgrimage for the eight days of Passover and unleavened bread, or if you can't do the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and if you can't do it correctly, because you got to set up a tent in order to do it. you got to set up a tent to keep the Fiesta of Tabernacles. The Bible says that you must set up a temporary lodging where Jesus has set his name. Jesus has not set his name. Any words that I know of, in the United States, but only right here at. If you, if you, if you continue to listen to the archives, the sermons from before now, and continue to listen and continue to pray and continue to fast and continue to grow in the Spirit of God, you will understand. I'm not trying to exalt myself, but rather, it's just simply the truth that this is where Jesus has set his name. And I do let people in other nations stay where they're at for the feast, but they got to go to a campground or somewhere. they got to go somewhere. In tents, not motels, not RVs, not campers, but tents, and camp for all eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And you have to set it up before that day not on the first day, but before the first day of the feast. And once the eight days are done, you have to tear down the tent after the feast is completely done, not on the last day of the feast. If you have an unbelieving husband, he's going to say, honey, I've got work to do. i got to get back home. And we got to get back on this day, and we're going to have to tear down the tent on the holy day. And even if you get by one year doing it right, the next year he ain't going to do it right. 
It ain't going to last forever if he did let you to the Lord for a time in a season, sooner or in a season, sooner or later. As you grow brighter and brighter, it's going to be a conflict with his darkness. And there will be conflict and there cannot be coexistence. It's only a temporary thing if there's ever any coexistence. We have to face reality. Amen. And when I think of this verse in Acts 5.29, better to obey God than man, what is the greatest authority on earth? Think about that for a minute before I answer it. What is the greatest authority on earth if we have to obey God than man? Is the greatest authority on earth husbands or human government? Or is it God's government? Is your husband the greatest authority on earth over and above your pastor? Is man's government over and above your pastor's authority? Where is God's government on this earth? God's and where is the modern man? Where is the modern man? Where is the modern Moses and Noah? Where is the modern apostle? Paul is dead. Where is the modern apostle? God has chosen apostles for every generation. Amen. Don't wait until the strong delusion, until the appearance of the Antichrist in full manifestation, with full power that he is going to manifest in himself. Don't wait until that moment to follow Christ 100%. Time is short. The disciples of Christ, the 12 disciples, even though one of them was a betrayer, when we think of the group, the disciples followed him how long? Not just uh, a year, not just a few weeks, but they followed him three and a half years. They did not wait until the last minute, like the foolish women in Matthew 25. In five, Matthew 25, you got the, the parable of the ten virgins, five wise virgins, five foolish virgins. The foolish versions waited until the last minute to be fully equipped for the service of the light of the Lord. Right and full of oil. Right and full of oil. Right and full of oil. Amen. Internet interruption reconnecting in four seconds. Let's wait for everybody to be able to hear this. 14 seconds is rebooting. So let me check. This phone is out. Talk shoe is still going, but I've got to run get my phone off my desk, please. This phone is uh, rebooting. So everybody on talk shoe, just give me a minute. I've got to get a different internet connection up for the people that are listening uh, on talk shoe and on the radio station. Thank you. This won't take long. Just get this other internet turned on.
because that wire was loose right there and the battery died. Uh, okay. Reconnecting and connecting now. Is reconnected now. Is reconnected now. Reconnected now. Yeah. Okay. Now we're back. Sorry for that loss of internet there for a minute. Thank you for your patience. Now, what I was saying, because I don't know how long that was up there, uh, but we're back on the internet, and what I was saying is, what is the greatest authority on earth? Husbands? Are the husbands the greatest authority on earth? Is human government the greatest authority on earth? Or is it God's government? That's a simple question. You might have to dig deep a little bit, but it really is very simple. What is the greatest authority on earth? Husbands or human government or God's government? Now, understand that if the husband is obedient to the Lord, he fits in the category of God's government. But not if he is an unbeliever. No. A lot of women, a lot of people, your husband is God's not a senator. He's not a of God. senator. Of God. Senator. Of God. Senator. Of God. If he's not a representative of God, then you cannot say that your husband is a representative of God. Amen? If your husband does not represent God, you cannot call him God's head, that he is your head. No. Your husband is not your head if he's not under Christ. Because if your husband is your head, but he's not under Christ, in Christ, if he's not in Christ, then your husband is headless. Amen. Actually, he's not headless because he does have a God. So who is the head of your husband? Satan. If he's an unbeliever, if he's an atheist, if he's in Babylon, then your husband's head is not Christ, but the father of lies, the head of the church of Satan, the sinner God of Satan, the God of the unbelievers, the God of this world is the God of your husband. So if you submit yourself to your husband unconditionally forever, and never ever willing to forsake him, then you are his head is Satan. And Satan, amen, amen, amen. Well, I've never heard anybody say any, any of this before, ever. And this proves that we are not part of what everybody else says. We're not part of Babylon. Amen. This is the body of Christ. Because we understand these deep things of God. I've never read this. I've never heard this. I've never heard this preach. But we understand these deep things of God. This is deep, man. Hey, dude. This is deeper than smoking pot. This is so deep. Amen. We have the Spirit of God. That's how come we can get this deep. I don't know anybody else that can get this deep because they don't have the Spirit of God. Amen. 
But the disciples followed Christ for three and a half years. Don't wait till the last minute like the foolish women in Matthew 25. It takes years to study under Christ, to be his disciple, to be his student, to learn his ways, and to get all of the Babylonian thoughts out of you. It takes years. And if you wait to after strong to be baptized, strong delusion to flee, if you wait to after strong delusion, wait to after strong delusion to, to after strong delusion to totally surrender your life to God, then even though you're still going to have the tribulation time, you would still be pressing to try to make it in just under the timer. Just right under the timer. It's better to make it in sooner, as soon as possible. The longer that you make it in, into the true family of God and truly surrender to God 100%, the more you will grow, the more time you will have to grow, the more time to get all of Babylon out, the more time to become totally submissive. And you need to be able to do that, not only in a timely fashion, but without any hindrance. Without any, 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 any hindrance. Amen. And be willing to forsake anyone who would be a hindrance to you in your spiritual growth of God. Amen. I'm going to ask this question to everybody, whether you're married or not. What would you do to follow Jesus after the Antichrist stands up worldwide and says, I'm God, you must worship me. And the police and the military starts enforcing that. After that, now, to, to, to worship God, because that's going to be a pivotal moment in history. That's going to be a changing moment, a historic moment, and that will really, really, really provoke many people to start examining themselves much deeper, much more serious. Many, more, many people will flee. Many people will uh, finally come right here where I am. Finally. And many people will finally accept me as a true prophet. And, and much of the doctrines and prophecies will be validated. What would you do then that you're not doing now to follow Christ? Except... Only just fleeing. Other than fleeing, what would you do to actually follow Christ? After that, that you're not doing right now. Because really, whatever the answer to that is, you should be doing right now. Amen. Other than just the fleeing part, just for physical survival. What would you do after the manifestation of the Antichrist, the strong delusion, the abomination of desolation, that you're not doing now because something is holding you back with your spiritual growth, spiritual obedience to Christ. What are you not? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I'm going to go through a list, and each one in this list. It's going to be a different person, but I'm not going to call any names. But you'll know who you are. And I'm not trying to hurt nobody, but I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to provoke you to total surrender. Okay? I'm doing this only to help you. But perhaps you're holding back 
on being ordained as a pastor. Perhaps you're holding back on fulfilling that calling, that service, that call of service to be that degree, that magnitude of a leader for others, that much of a service to others. We've got to face the facts. There is no such thing as a perfect pastor. I am not perfect. I may be God's voice upon this earth right now, but I am not a perfect man, and I am not sinless. I cuss a little bit, well, maybe a lot more than what I should. I just confess it. But a pastor, an apostle, and a prophet is not perfect. We, we, we're just humans. But the calling on of a pastor, servitude, 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 it's not perfection. It is servitude. Amen. And so why not serve others to the full capacity, to your full calling, as much as possible? Why not be the person in your nation? If you're a man, why not be the person in your nation to say <clears throat> that you're the only one that can locally lead the people as a pastor under this administration, of course, under this administration, under my apostleship, I would lead you, I would help you, I would give you advice, you know, I, I would coach you, you wouldn't be doing it by yourself, so why not? Fulfill the full servitude to the people in your area. And then another person, why not just go ahead and get baptized now instead of waiting till after you graduate school? Why wait to serve Jesus 100%? Why wait to be saved? Why wait to be baptized until after you put all these other things first? You put school first, parents first, age, whatever, school. You leave school, you gotta leave your parents' house, you gotta wait to the great tribulation, you gotta wait to the great tribulation, you gotta wait to the great tribulation, you gotta wait to all this, and then get saved. Why put Christ last? Why wait to a strong delusion or great tribulation? And then another person. There are people that listen to these sermons that have never reached out for baptism. Why not? Do you really think that you've already been baptized by somebody that believes in a three-headed God monster and who keeps demonic Christmas and, and baptizes backwards and baptizes in the Trinity formula and all that stuff? And you really think that your baptism was real? Why not reach out for baptism? Why hold back on God? Why wait until the great tribulation? And then another person, why not follow up about baptism? If we've already spoken about baptism, and yet I've not followed up, uh, I, I've maybe either, well, I don't forget, but what if I've put you on the back burner? What if I've been slow about your baptism? Why don't you just reach out and follow up with me and show, you show the initiative 
you need to be baptized. Be baptized. Baptized. I encourage people to seize the kingdom by force. People need to be the ones that seek and reseek for baptism. I shouldn't have to push people for baptism. It should be you reaching out as much as necessary to get the baptism fulfilled. And then another person quit the ministry as far as I can tell. I mean, they're not being on me. We since Perm or even before Perm, I think. Quit the ministry, it seems like, after I declared that my writings are scripture. Yet, can you find anyone on earth today, anyone on earth, can you find anyone else on earth today whose writings are as authoritative as my writings? Did God stop talking 2,000 years ago? Has God not called any apostles or prophets for 2,000 years? Has no scripture been written for 2,000 years and God just stopped calling apostles and prophets even though he always did before that? Has Christ died again and stayed dead and never rose from the dead as an apostle? Yes, I am. A voice of him. A voice of him. A voice of God on this earth. I am speaking God's words and writing under his influence, the influence of the Holy Breath or the Holy Ghost, as the prophets of old also did. I'm in the office of the two witnesses until the two witnesses arise, and I will still be in that office even after they arise. I don't understand why this is difficult to accept that there would be modern scripture. When Moses wrote scripture, it was new. For that generation. When Isaiah wrote scripture, his writings were new. When Ezekiel wrote scripture, his writings were new. When Hosea did, when Daniel did, when Matthew did, when Mark, when Luke, when John, when Peter, when Paul. You go throughout all the Bible. It was new every time that there was a new writing that was new. And it was different generations. It was different centuries. It was even different millennials. Has God died again and never rose from the dead this time? Has God changed? Amen. The website, the articles, the books, Alpha and not considered. Have you not considered? Have you not considered? Have you not considered the weight of the strong delusion revelation? That is a huge divine revelation. Have you not considered how divine the strong delusion understanding is about what, how it's going to happen and even when? Have you not considered the weight? of the revelation of the five holy days in the end time prophetic timeline. Do not these revelations carry the weight of modern day scripture? Have you not thought about that? Would you not follow the commands of Moses when he was the newly chosen prophet of God? Would you not follow Noah when he first started 
pronouncing the word of God as a new prophet upon the earth when Noah first started preaching or prophesying. What about Paul after he had gotten saved? Would you have followed Paul during his lifetime? And would you have considered his writings as scripture in that day and time? And yet they were new. Very, very new. Yeah, really new. Telling you same for you still would have accepted it, even though it was testament by Old Testament, by Old Testament. Nor is it proven now. Yet all of those men are dead. God always appoints living apostles and prophets for every generation, of which we should obey over and above all other mankind, husbands, wives, and human government. God's government is primary over and above all other masters, all other heads, all other governments. God's prophets and apostles are God's voice. They are God's voice upon this earth. And then another person. Another person cannot absolutely declare that the Democrats are wicked. How come you can't say that simple sentence? How come you cannot simply say that Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the Democrat Party, that they are evil, that they are wicked. How come you can't just say that simple sentence instead of trying to always beat around the bush and say that you don't get involved in politics and you don't like politics? That's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. That's an excuse, an easy way out. And how come you can't declare why God, 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 is one spirit and not three spirits. How come you cannot make a simple declaration of your faith of the truth and why you believe or why you have supposedly maybe come to the truth? How come you cannot declare what the truth is and why? And then finally, one more person is why Will you not forsake anyone within your physical household? How come you're not willing to forsake child or husband? And why are you putting husband over and above God's authority or in God's authority? Why are you putting an unbeliever, unbelieving husband in the seat of God's authority? He doesn't belong in that seat. Kick him out. Amen. Now that's the list of each person's problems. But let me move on, and we're very close to ending now, very close to the end now. Let me ask this question. At what point should the females stop being weak? Amen. At what point females and the wives stop being wives, stop being wives, Stop being weak, worldly, Gentile slaves to their husbands. Bible says that there's neither male nor female in the kingdom of God, and that we won't be married in the kingdom of God. 
At what point should a woman stop being a slave to a worldly master, a worldly husband, and become a sexless spirit like the angels, neither male nor female? At what point should your soul, as a woman, stop being, stop kissing your husband's ass and be a sexless soul belonging only to God, belonging, belonging only to God. I would say that moment needs to come before God comes. I would say that that moment needs to come before Christ comes. At what point should a female become the bride of Christ rather than the bride of a lost man? I'll say that again. At what point should a female become the bride of Christ rather than the bride of a, the bride of a lost soul? The answer is as soon as possible so that you have more time to grow and mature before the first resurrection. If, you're, if you are still a babe, man or woman, if you are still a babe in Christ, when the first resurrection occurs, then you will not enter the first resurrection. Whether you're a man, woman, single, married, it don't matter. If you're still a babe in Christ and you have not matured enough, grown enough, surrendered enough, if you have not forsaken enough people, if you have not followed deeply enough, then you will not make it in to the first resurrection. You will have to wait to the second resurrection. And if you enter the second resurrection, you will be symbolically as a second wife and not a first wife. The first resurrection goes to the marriage supper of God. They are the first wife. They take part in the marriage supper of God. The people that go to the second resurrection in a sense, they will still, if they get saved and be turned to spirit, they will, in a sense, be in the same sense, but not in the same sense, not in the same sense, not as deeply, because that would be the second wife. And I don't even read of a marriage supper for that second group. I don't. I don't read of a marriage supper for that group. Perhaps they'd be more as a concubine. And if not a concubine, definitely second wife and not first. Why should we not seek to be the first wife? Amen. We should seek to be in the first kingdom and not let any man, woman, or child hinder that goal. For all run a race. The only one can win. They will have a chance in the second resurrection. Don't be putting flesh and blood first. They will get their chance. Let God take care of that. Amen. God has a plan for them too. But if you're being called to win the race now, then fight and win the race no matter what it takes. Leave the others behind. There will be many left behind. Don't let them cause you to lose the race. 
whatever you waiting for the strong delusion for do it now other than just fleeing whatever you, whatever you're not doing for christ do this now you would do then would do then stop holding back and do it now amen okay thank you for your patience that's all the sermon i just want to remind you again new moon services wednesday march 25th wednesday will be new moon services the first moon of a new year wednesday morning special services seven o'clock in the morning eastern time and also i do want to play a song a brand new song for you i'm gonna put it on beautiful beautiful song and before i play that song i'm gonna give out the code to make for sure certain people are listening the certain people i want you to send me a code only if you're one of these people if you are meekness brother meekness bj in india uh, alex in texas jennifer in wisconsin alexandra up in canada or maybe alaska and also the new man that just contacted me for baptism and your first name is christian so meekness bj in india alex jennifer alexandra and the new man named christian if any of you are listening to the sermon or will listen to the sermon and you hear this please send me an email type of message, message somehow and get the code code and the code code and the code is divorce code equals divorce send that to me and that will let me know that you did hear this sermon and that will help me to know that you're doing your part that you're keeping the seventh day a hundred percent that you're listening to the sermons like you're supposed to be and that will help me to feel better about the situation and, and, and to know that you're doing that you're serving God as much as you need to be doing so send me that if you're one of those people the code is the word divorce okay I'm gonna put on this song now the name of this song is called fix me fix me Lord Jesus and um, I think it did come before the movie right uh, so I don't know when it originally started, but it was uh, more recently in a movie called Joyful Noise. And I love that movie. We watched it for the first time last week. It has uh, Dolly Parton and uh, the woman they call Queen Latifah. And that's the one that's singing this in this particular song bite. Queen Latifah, Latifah, I can't pronounce it, but and Dolly Parton played in the movie and it's a custom movie i don't really recommend that movie i do that movie i do that movie i do i recommend that movie we all cuss every one of you i do you do i know you do and it's not overboard it's not too much cussing it's it's perfect it's a great movie great movie called joyful noise and this song is in there but the song I was written before the movie. This is called Fix Me.
song. Okay, if for any reason that anybody could not listen to the entire sermon for technical, I've had technical difficulties left and right today. Uh, this is recorded. The whole thing was recorded. So it will be uploaded and archived um, on the website, on SoundCloud, as well as on the Mixler website. And you'll be able to catch up and fill in the blanks, whatever you might have missed. Uh, technical difficulties. Sorry about that. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. I'll see you Wednesday for the. And until then, bless you, guide you, and lead you in all truth. Lead you in all truth. Lead you in all truth. And into the center of His will. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.